Hey everyone, welcome back. I just want to share that I had, or I published my first negative feedback that I've gotten from, about, about the podcast from a woman named Alexandra. You can see it on Spotify in the last episode. She says that I use too many fillers, like uh and um, and that it takes away from the punch of what I'm trying to say. To which I reply, thank you, Alexandra. That's, um, sorry about that one. That helps. It really is helpful to, to hear how I can improve this thing. I know I have a lot to improve just in terms of, I mean, everything really. Um, so I, I really just, I just wanna to say to anyone that does listen to this, I, I encourage that you give honest feedback and let me know how I can improve things. You know, there are a lot of things that I think about, about what I want to do better, but I don't have your perspective. So it'd be super helpful if you guys can comment. And I also just also want to say thanks to all the people that have subscribed lately. Uh, we just, I just crossed a hundred subscribers overall. Really exciting to see the numbers grow at an ever more quickening pace, which is really just, it's fantastic. And on that note, I want to say that this episode with Jonathan Pollard was one of my favorites that I've done so far. He is super interesting to talk to. How many people, how, how many of you know a world famous former spy who sat in jail for 30 years with I don't know probably the worst the worst parts of humanity ever <laughs> so he's just got incredible stories to tell about his life I've only scratched the surface with him this is the second time I've talked to him this first time for for the podcast and I would urge you to listen to the conversation in its entirety because towards the end, uh, we go to rather serious and dark places of just the way that we think about Israel and Israel's security. And it's an important, it's an important dialogue to, to listen to and his thoughts are well, I'm going to be writing about his thoughts on the newsletter, on my newsletter soon. And I'd love to hear what you all have to think about this. Anyway, it was a really great time talking to Jonathan, and I hope you enjoy. Thanks. My dad created something, and it was released. And what? What do you mean he created It's toxin. It was released. And the Army Corps of Engineers hadn't done an adequate job on evaluating the area near Dugway for you know, environmental issues. There were a lot of wadis. We'd call them here wadis. There, they're gullies. And the gas just sunk into the gullies and went places they didn't think it would go. It killed almost half a million sheep, and unfortunately, two shepherds died. And um, my father, oh, geez, I remember the bonfires. They burned all those sheep. They just dumped gasoline on them. I mean, it was like something out of Hieronymus fucking Bosch. I mean, Whoa. just bonfires of, of sheep burning. And um, oh my God. to the end of his life, my father never ate lamb. <laughs> he couldn't bring himself to eat lamb. So 
you know, this is this was pop. You know, I found out later when I was in the Navy and I looked him up and I asked him, I said, what was the programs that you released um, viruses in subways in the 50s in New York and in Philadelphia and what? Chicago? And that, you know, people died and like, what was that all about? And he looked at me and he said, well... Yes, he said we had to figure out if subways could be used for biological warfare by the Soviets. And he said, unfortunately, there were, um, you know, some, some people that died, elderly people that had, you know, <laughs> problems. Um, wait, wait. Uh, casualties, you know, of war. This and is I insane. said, what war were we in? I don't understand that. He said, no, it was the Cold War. He said, you have to understand this. And I said, but you're such... A humanitarian. I said, how can you do that? And he said, I'm a patriot above all else. Oh, he, well, he was a fanatic. I mean, American flag. I mean, the whole wow. nine yards. Wait, what, what, what did your dad do? What they did was... No, no, that, no as in, like, what was his profession? Um, wow. He started off in the U.S. Cavalry as an officer and veterinarian. Got a veterinary degree from OSU, Ohio State. Cavalry meaning what? Like he was... horses and sabers. <laughs> like 1931. How old is your dad? Like a thousand he years was old? Ancient. He was old as dirt. <laughs> and um, Wow. So, yeah, there are pictures of him, you know, next to a horse uh, in his outfit, jodhpurs, sabers, twin 45, Smokey the Bear hat. Holy and shit. I was just looking at this, and we had relatives that would always laugh at this picture, and I never understood why. And finally, my father told me, he said, well, you see the brand on the horse's 9th U.S. calf. I said, yeah, that was your regiment. I understand that. What's so funny? He said, well, you know, he said, your grandfather, your mother's father, came over with 14 brothers, right? Turn of the century. I said, yeah. You only know about 13 of them, right? I said, yeah, what happened to the 14th? He said, well, he's kind of associated with that horse. And I said, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> okay. Well, he decided that he wasn't going to go to Canada. Most of the brothers went to Calgary when they got off the boat. My grandfather went to Pittsfield, Massachusetts for some reason. The 13th took the train to Texas, the border. Why? Well, um, there was a border war going on at the time. Mexico was in turmoil. What year was this? In the early 1900s. Okay. And um, banditos were coming across the border and raiding towns, Pancho Villa, you know. And, and the cavalry caught a bunch of them. And, you know, back then they didn't really have rules about interrogation. So after shooting a bunch of them, you know, the, the, the survivors opened up. And, and they, the, uh, the cavalry wanted to know, where, where did you get our horses? Because you're all riding 9th U.S. Cavalry mounts. Yeah. And they said, well, there's this Russian Jew in your cantonment that's stealing the horses and selling them to us. So they tra traced this guy from southern Texas all the way to Canada by horse. They chased him all the no way. way. Yeah, they were going to hang him. Of course they were going to hang him. So, they were that determined to get this of guy? Of course. It, well, first of all, it's Texas. You steal a horse in Texas, you die. I mean, it doesn't matter at that time. Horse, horse thief in Texas? Really? Yeah, you swing. So um, oh he finally got into Canada and made his way to um, Calgary, where all his brothers were, uh, his 12, 12 of the brothers. And um, 
okay, when he calmed down, they asked him, what do you want to do? Now, you've got to earn a living somehow. Yeah. And the first question he asked was, are there any horse farms in this area? And after beating the crap out of him, he finally went into a more um, legal and ultimately lucrative business, selling um, railroad ties to the Canadian Pacific. Okay. That was just building the transcontinental railroad, trans-Canadian railroad at the time what made a ton hell, of money man. what a story but but uh, yeah he's kind of my hero you know <laughs> I, in a sense but um, I, I was actually when you were telling that that story it it reminded me of when when we spoke those i don't know a few months ago um you have this sort of i don't know like this playful side to you right well, I mean, I can't take life too seriously. Not <laughs> no. after what I've been through. What? <laughs> um, and I always grew up uh, kind of with uh, a a weird sense of humor. You definitely do, man. And <laughs> in prison, humor is, is you know where you can find it, but it's usually centers around the misfortune of somebody else. Well, nothing. What is... else do you have in prison except misfortune? And so. For example, um, there was an instance where a black guy uh, was uh, buck naked uh, in the middle of the winter on the water tower, and he suddenly real sobered up for a second and realized this is not the right place to be in an ice storm, naked, naked. Right. So he was screaming for somebody to come get him down. So you know we were all watching this. You know, like how is this going to end? This is well, this was entertainment for the day, right? Right. So. No officer would go up and get him because, you know, you could die. It's, it was very bad weather, and the guy was drugged out of his mind, you know. So so they called the inmate fire department that was made up almost entirely of white supremacists. No. And so these about 20 guys had this uh, trampoline-type thing that they, you know, for people jumping, that they brought under the tower, and they were all yelling at him to jump. Now, these guys all had, you know— um, mohawks and swastikas on their necks, and you know, I mean, they were hardcore Nazis, legit. <laughs> and they're yelling at this black guy to jump. And I knew this wasn't going to end well. I could have written the script before it ended. And the, even the black guys, the the other inmates, were laughing at what was going to happen. And sure enough, the guy finally jumped. And they waited until the very last moment, and then just kind of sidestepped <gasps> about five or six feet. And he landed on the concrete, and it was kind of a gory mess, and we just broke down, just laugh. I was laughing so hard, I almost threw up. It was so funny. What happened to the guy? He died. What? <laughs> I mean, what the hell do you think happened to him? He died. Head looked like a pumpkin that got hit by a fifty caliber dum-dum. I this mean, is he a terrible story. No, but it was fun. I mean, it was, it was prison humor. <laughs> I told you, humor in prison always centers around the misfortune of somebody. Okay. Because there's just nothing else to laugh at in prison. There just right. isn't. No one's, no one's really fulfilling their dreams in, in prison, I suppose. Well, some people are. I mean, some people were saved by going to prison. And they'll tell you that flat out they were drugged out, they were on the road to hell, uh, they were going to die, and prison gave them an opportunity to kind of clean up and um, survive, get into treatment programs, and um, begin to turn their lives around. Of course, given the sentences they had, there was no place to go. I mean, they were in prison for the duration, but at least they, they took charge of their lives, perhaps 
uh, for the first time in their life mm. and um, kind of went in a, in a more constructive direction. So, but, listen, I, I know that you, when we spoke, you wanted to talk about the present moment in this country and even the future, but I do think that just given... So the, when we talked, when we did that, that mm-hmm. event uh, a couple months ago, I, I I was going in there thinking like I'm going to be speaking to this nut, this kooky guy who spent all this time and and I just couldn't. You won me over. Like yeah, I I couldn't help but thinking that this is a completely sane person. You know, you have got a very interesting sense of humor, but lucid. You know, you you somehow got it together, and I think that I don't know. I was inspired just by listening to your story even though it was i mean we, we went for like two hours and we could have gone for 10 so i only got a fraction of it mm-hmm. and um i just think that you know people people ought to hear your story man and uh and then i think you know obviously if you wouldn't you can talk about whatever you want but um i guess the story is centers around what happens to an otherwise sane individual when they're put in, in an insane situation. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever read anything by E.E. E. Cummings, like no. The Enormous Room. But I had just finished reading the book when I got arrested. And it was a text that I had occasion to refer to many times over the course of the succeeding years. Um, it's, it's hard to explain the book. Um, it, was, it was set in the First World War. And of course, at that during that conflict, especially towards the end, there were a lot of deserters mm. that were caught by the Allies and interned, in, or actually imprisoned. Uh, some of them awaiting execution. Some of them just, just didn't know what to do with them. And so, the enormous room is really a story about. In my mind, it was a story about just rational people that were placed in an irrational setting war is irrational Mm. and that they just finally said what the hell am I doing here and then they were placed in another truly irrational situation with these uh, prison camps and to keep your sanity you have to always remember to center yourself Uh, you have to remember why you're there in this otherwise irrational situation and that while you have to be part of that community that you find yourself in, because if you're an outlier, then you're suspect. And if you're suspect, you get eliminated pretty quickly. Okay. You're killed because they don't, they don't know who and what you are. Mm. And they just assume the worst. And in many cases, they're, they're correct. Um, because inmate spies or informants generally give themselves away. How? Uh, by the questions they ask, by their kind of dodgy background, um, the fact that there are no secrets in prison. When a guy uh, came on the compound, I remember one time, and he was sitting with us, and I asked him, like, you know, how many years do you, what did you do? What's your, what, what's your crime? And he was, you know, he claimed to be a serial bank robber. And it was pretty clear after a few minutes that he didn't know anything about robbing banks hmm. and so the bank robbers amongst us you know were giving us the eye you know like this so he was asking too many questions and his name didn't check out in prison you don't ask questions no you don't ask questions really no why no no no, no. 
Well, because why do you want to know? Pass the time, get to know something. No, you want to pass the time. There are other things you can do. But you don't want to dig into anybody's background. Because? Because you might find something that will cost you your life. You know, when you confront somebody and say, hey, I just read a case history of you ratting out, you know, the the uh, black mafia in Philadelphia, yeah, and you're dead the next day. I mean, it just happens that quickly. So, oh, wow. so you have to be very careful what you say, how you say it, and pick, pick the people you talk to. And uh, always look around to see who's, who's around you. I remember one time uh, I had a very close black friend um, who was imprisoned because uh, he wouldn't testify against his stepbrother that he knew nothing about. Nothing. So he was clean. But he was completely clean. And uh, if you read the transcript of his case, it'll just make you cry. Um, so we were talking, and uh, privately, I thought. And um, I was mentioning to him the fact that I thought it was really kind of wrong that so many black guys were using the N-word. Okay. Um, that I didn't think it, just because they were black, it gave them the right to perpetuate a slur. And he agreed with me. Um, he was a uh, Air Force uh, aircraft maintenance technician, a technical sergeant. Did you know him before? No, no. but I mean, he, he was a really nice guy, a very well-read, great musician, uh, clean kid, clean, right from the ghetto. And, and cleaned it, you know, just didn't get into trouble. And okay. Just a good person. And so um, a few minutes later, we were waiting for lunch, and there were a bunch of black guys that came up to me and said, you know, we heard you using the N-word, you know, and yeah, yeah me. And um, my friend was listening to the whole thing. And, I, you know, I didn't know exactly how to deal with this at this point. And my friend looked at this one black guy and said, um, you overheard our conversation? And the guy said, yeah, so what? He said, well, I was the one that started the conversation. You have a problem with me. And the guy looked at him, and my friend said, yeah, you do. And dead. That's how it's handled. That's how it's handled. I didn't He killed him and not you. My friend killed him. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Right then. Right then and there. This is the guy who was clean. He had no no prior. But he had to accommodate himself to prison conditions, just as I did. Holy shit. Yeah. I mean, if you're known as somebody who will defend yourself um, by whatever means and to whatever end, um, they generally either leave you alone or they kill you in a way in which you had no defense and you didn't see it coming and it's over very quickly. So either way, you come out ahead. My God. So, yeah, you have to just um, kind of it's – it's almost a process of uh, – growing a new skin you know every seven years they say you basically turn over your skin you change your skin well in prison it doesn't take seven years it takes minutes sometimes hours to completely change your persona to change your uh, outlook on life to change your evaluation of humanity and um, it's the closest thing to um, an anarchic battlefield. You know, even in a battlefield, you have rules, regulations, you have organization, you have tactics, strategy. In prison, 
Um, it's like a dystopian nightmare when you go in there. And you have to be prepared at all times for the unexpected. If, if, you, you, can, if you can figure this out, to prepare for the unexpected. The did you – okay, because you were a normal citizen, right, turned spy. Well, I wasn't really – I don't know what a normal citizen is. I mean, I worked – I mean, you you, didn't, you weren't in prison. No, 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 no. But but um, the organization I worked f- with and then for in the Navy was was an organization that kind of took the law into its own hands with regard to mm, terrorist threats in the United States. So um, we kind of lived above the law because we were the law. Mm. So we could define it any way we wanted, depending on the situation. So when I went to prison, uh, I just kind of modified my thinking mm. to suit this new situation. And so what that means is you, you pay people in the dorms, in the units, to um, keep you apprised of what people are saying about you. Pay people? Yeah, with commissary. Yeah, it's amazing what a bag of Cheetos will get you in prison. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, but you always have two people, not just one, because you can't trust one. So you have two independent of each other. Oh, God. And uh, so you have a network set up. Sometimes you make mistakes uh, when they, you, they, they play you, when they tell you someone's planning to kill you. And you take care of the situation, and it's an innocent person. They were setting him up, and they got me and some other people to take care of their dirty business. So you have to kind of be careful about that. But in prison, it's um, any – first of all, any kind of vice you can find on the street, you can find in prison. And by and large, the drugs and the alcohol and whatever else is going to pass your time, you're using to pass your time, is provided by the staff. And so that kind of, there's no respect at all. You know, you, you have dirty cops, basically. So you learn to work with them and to use them. So there was one instance where, I'll give you an example of this. There was a cop who was uh, bringing cigarettes in after cigarettes had been banned. He was a nice guy. He was a decent guy. He was a family man, had children. He just needed some extra money. We all understood that. Mm -hmm. And for $2,000 cash, a carton of cigarettes, I mean, he was taking a chance that he thought was acceptable. $2,000 for a carton of cigarettes? For a carton. Yeah. Look, the minute they banned cigarettes, we all knew there was going to be a black market. I mean, it's like you, the sun's going to rise in you know right. the west. I mean, okay. we, we all knew that. Really? How about the east? Well, it depends. I mean, that's the thing about prison. Does the sun rise in the west or the east? Well, it depends. That's why values are flexible. It all depends on context. <laughs> you know, why would you say the sun rises in the west? Because I want to see if you'll agree with me. <laughs> and if you, I mean, it's that crazy. Yeah. So there was a rat that he was working with. He was bringing cigarettes into. And we all felt kind of sorry for this guy. So we went to the cop and said, stop what you're doing. You know, you've got a wife. You've got kids. 
what are you doing? You want to make earn $2,000 a carton? Then deal with these people. Don't deal with this guy. And he said, no, I got this covered. And, um, yeah, they arrested him. And we, we actually felt sorry for the guy. There's, there's one story I tell people that when they really want to understand what prison is all about, and it, it kind of goes like this. There was a former um, state judge from South Carolina, young guy, who ended up in federal prison. Why? Well, the FBI found out there was uh, shenanigans going on in the South Carolina court system and in the state legislature. Pretty routine stuff. But he got... Wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean routine stuff? Well, it was all corruption, you know. <laughs> no, I get that part. State assemblies, you know, state criminal justice systems. I mean, it's like southern Italy. You know, you got the money, <laughs> you can do what you want, especially in the south. Um, so at any rate, he got like three years or something, you know, a slap on the wrist. And I used to have lunch with him every day. And, I, you know, we always used to call him Your Honor. You know, he liked that. <laughs> he was younger than all of us. And um, a lot of the guys were asking him for legal advice. And he had been warned not to give it. And, uh, so, by the way, Judge Wachler, do you remember him? No. From New York. He was on the state, New York State Supreme Court. Okay. And he was shortlisted for um, uh, governorship. Okay. And he kind of had a mental problem. And um, anyway, he ended up in prison. He was having kind of a torrid affair with his uh, cousin. And when it didn't work out, you know, he was making threatening calls, you know, ma masking his voice in uh, courtroom breaks. You know, he'd go into chambers. And then she was the, um, I don't know, she collected money for uh, Bush's reelection. <laughs> in New York, so the FBI got involved, and they caught him. Okay, he ends up in prison, and he was a great guy. I mean, he needed, once he was on lithium, he was okay. And I, I, he was one of the few people I genuinely felt sorry for because he was really whip-smart, very nice. He never should have been put in this prison where we were. And he, somebody tried to stab I mean, somebody stabbed him. And um, you just, know, I mean, just just because I actually don't remember because you were in several prisons. This is the one that was like in Butner. No, no, this was in Butner, the last prison I was uh, in. Not the one that's like no underground. No, 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 no. Okay. So back to the Your state state judge. Yeah. From South Carolina, they moved a guy by the name of nickname or the moniker of Tiny into his room, and of course, Huge Tiny man. was humongous. Yeah, he was just like a beached whale. He was a, a fallen biker who was a notorious rat. He was never getting out of prison. So he was screwing people up for like a month off. You know, his, his multiple life sentences. And we warned the judge about him. Don't. They put him in your room for a reason. Don't talk to him. Don't, don't endanger yourself. Okay. What did this idiot do? Tiny worked on him telling him that the U.S. attorney that prosecuted him uh, had been a high school friend of his and his wife was now going to go hit on his wife and take his wife, who was a beautiful woman, a classic Southern belle. Okay. And that, um, you know, he was going to come home to an empty house. And don't you think you should do something about that? And 
what he suggested was hiring a hitman to kill the U.S. attorney. And the judge agreed. Oh, no. So at a meeting of a visit, the judge met a, uh, a hitman who was actually an FBI agent. And the judge's wife paid the agent $10,000 in the parking lot of the prison to do the hit. And the judge was arrested. The wife, you know, was threatened with arrest. And when he was brought to uh, Petersburg prison, where I, I spent some time, they told him, you know, you're, you may get the death penalty for this. What? And your wife is going to be imprisoned, and your little five-year-old boy will probably be put up for adoption, you know, whatever. So he, he killed himself that night. Uh-huh. And next couple of days, we found out by reading the uh, USA uh, Today that um, the wife was in the front yard of their house playing ball with their little boy. The ball went into the road. And the little boy ran after the ball and got run over by a city bus. You know, pieces of them were all over the road. Oh, God. So the mother looked at this and walked into the house and ate a gun. And what did Tiny get? Tiny got, I think it was two months off his sentence for what he did. And what did he do? He murdered three people. That's basically what he did. So... They moved him to another institution, of course. Yeah. So where he would continue doing their dirty work. So the first day I was in prison, I, I in that prison, I was at lunch. And this um, guy called Boss Man, you know, it's the South, white yeah. guy, came yeah. up to me and said, uh, I know who you are. I said, good for you. He said, I know you haven't really talked. And I said, yeah, and... He said, well, why don't you tell me what you didn't tell the government and mm. um, you know, give some love to me. You know, maybe I can get some time off. And I said, I, you're crazy. What do you, you know, get away from me. And you, know, you had guys like this all the time on the make in prison trying to shave a day, a week, a month off their time by informing. So you really... Every day, you had to be very careful of who you talked to and what you said to them and uh, provocateurs that would come up and try to get you to do or say something. One guy came into my roommate uh, for 23 years, and I were always on guard about this. Uh, new guy knocks on our door, walks in. He says, uh, hi. Yeah, Hi. He said, have you guys ever thought about escaping from this place? I'm like, oh, fuck. Okay. We didn't say anything. And uh, I pulled out a knife. My roommate pulled out a knife and just backed him out of the room, shut the door. I went to speak to the counselor in the unit later that day. And I said, you know, come on. If you're trying to entrap us, please. (laughs) Do something more sophisticated. <laughs> there was a guy I knew that. Well, how did you? How did you guys have a knife? We everybody had a knife. <laughs> what? Everybody had a knife. Holy and shit! You better know how to use it. You better know how to use it. Did you have? Did you learn how to use a knife in prison? No, I knew how to use a knife from before. Motherfucker. Yeah. So, one time I was sitting at dinner. I couldn't eat anything. Nothing kosher. You know, I'm just sitting there. Nothing better to do. And these three black guys show up. They don't know me from Adam and sit down. 
and they're talking about killing my roommate. You know, he's white, they're black. You know, they're gonna they're gonna blood in to one of the gangs, the gangster disciple gangs, and they just picked him. They didn't know who he was. The, he was my roommate was a. Um, I guess the polite way of putting it, or professional way of putting it, he was a trained assassin, army assassin, okay, <laughs> uh, like Delta Force type guy, and um, he was lethal, completely innocent of the charges against him. Completely, the sentencing judge even said as much in the transcript. I know you're innocent, but I have no choice but to impose three consecutive life sentences on you for a bombing I know you didn't commit. He what? came home one time, cheated on his wife with her best friend, who okay. promptly bragged about it to her. So hell hath no fury, right? So her brother was an explosive ordnance expert in the Army. They rigged a bomb. His fingerprints were on the box, of course. He was not even in the country at the time, and three people died. So she got him, right? Because he was cheating an affair. On yeah. Three people died, and he went to jail. Yeah. So they're going to kill this guy, and I'm listening to this. Oh, shit. So I got up, and um, he was in the art room. He was a very good um, ceramicist. He knew how to do pottery really well. Okay. So <laughs> I went and retrieved um, a knife, which is a plastic knife. That you bury them around the compound. They, they sweep with a metal detector, so you make oh. it out of plastic. And this was... but. Sharp so enough to kill someone. Oh, hell yeah. This is Plastic. Th thick plexiglass. Okay. Yeah, double-edged, like cloverleaf type. Okay. You know, it was electrical tape handle, you know, so non-slip handle. You know, it was. So um, I was looking around for some. I saw them go into the, into the um, rec building. So okay. I, I'm, I'm already behind time right now. So I saw another guy, uh, ex-military. We all kind of hung together and got him. He got his knife, and we went in to basically either stop or help uh, my roommate. So by the time we got in there, they were already around him in a semicircle, and he was sitting very placidly at, the, at his you know, work desk with a pottery knife, which has a little tiny blade, maybe an inch long. Mm-hmm. And um, we opened the door very carefully and walked in. Now, there are three of them, so I got behind one. My friend got behind a second one, and the third one my roommate can take care of. So we're looking at these guys, figuring out, where are you going to hit these guys? Neck, lower back, kidney? I mean, they were big, so w what are you going to do? How are you go That's what we're thinking. How are you going to hit them? And the next thing we know, my roommate kind of smiles and looks at these guys, and he's, he said, so you're going to kill me, huh? And they said, yep, we're going to kill you. He said, I think you better turn around and see what, who's behind you. And I froze, and my friend froze because the element of surprise is gone. Now I'm going to have to face this guy head on. And the minute they turned their heads, it was, it was almost milliseconds, it seemed like it was millisecond. They're all three of them are on the ground bleeding from cuts to the carotid artery, bleeding out, you know, shaking, arterial spray, just flopping on the ground. You did this or your, your, no, your friend? No, my roommate did. All three of them? All three of them. Bang, bang, bang in a row. 
And I looked at the other guy that was with me, and I said, what the hell just happened? And I looked at my roommate, and I said, how did you do this? That, that was my first question. It was a professional question. <laughs> how exactly did you do this? Wow, this is oh awesome. God. How did you do this? <laughs> oh, my God. And, you know, suddenly, you know, we realized, shit, we got three gangbanger, would-be gangbangers dead on the floor, blood everywhere. We're not exactly going to be able to just walk out of this room. There are cameras everywhere. So I said, oh, God. I said, all right, I'll go get the captain. So I went and got the captain, who was a really nice guy. And he and four or five other officers came in, all white, ex all ex-military. Okay. And they came in, and, you know, first thing he said was, why, why, why? What have we here? <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. So he looked at me, and he said, uh, Pollard, can I see your knife? I said, yeah. So I showed him my knife, no blood. The other guy, no blood. He looked at Steve, and he said, I don't believe this. He said, let me see your knife. So Steve showed him the pottery knife. It was just already co with coagulated blood everywhere. The first thing the captain said was, how did you do Same thing we did. How did you do this? So, you know, he explained it in very kind of surgical terms. So the captain looks at the situation and says, well, it looks like a drug deal gone bad here with three bad dudes, three gangbangers. Oh. So he said, uh, why don't you boys just go back to the unit and take the night off, you know, take it easy. I'll, I'll take care of this. So the next day in the local paper, there was a story that three gangbangers got into a fight and they um, killed one another somehow. And that was it. Turn the page. Turn the page. I never saw anybody um, prosecuted for anything. I mean, wow. if you hit an officer or you stabbed an officer, yeah. that's one thing. Of course, if there were a... Um, a witness, a government witness, and you hit him, you're, you're in little trouble for that yeah. also. So, I mean, that was my society. That's where I so, lived. Okay, so I want to ask you, because you said that that story about um, Tiny was, like, that anecdote encapsulates what you had to deal with, right? And you said that that experience changed your view of humanity. Is that is that correct? Or? I had a pretty low view of humanity before I went <laughs> <Okay>. into prison. <laughs> in fact, I had a very low opinion Thanks. of humanity. On behalf of all of us, thank you. Uh, yeah, before I went into prison. <laughs> and a lot of that um, was because of what I saw and experienced growing up. Um, at a very young age, my parents started taking me to concentration camps in Europe because we didn't know where many of our relatives um, were murdered. So we just went to as many of them as we could to say Kaddish. And, you know, my father, I remember reading this book called uh, The Last of the Just by Andre Schwartzbart. And that was kind of a coming-of-age book for me. Um, and then we went to Dachau after I finished the book and talked to my mom and dad about the book. Yeah. And um, they told me to go in alone, which I did. And I went through the museum and um, went through the camp. And I came out a very different person than I was when I entered. Um, shortly after that, when I was 13, we were in Prague, Czechoslovakia. Um, my father had some business for the government there. Um, it was the Prague Spring with Alexander Dubček. Mm. And so um, my father didn't have any security clearances or anything at that time. 
he was clean. And his job basically, he was asked to go in and kind of debrief um, the Czech scientists who had worked for the Russians, the Russian uh, biopreparat, the uh, Russian biological warfare establishment. And, well, the Russians came into Prague when we were there in August of 68, my 13th birthday. And um, Came in as in? And they invaded Operation Danube. And you uh, you they, saw? They yeah, we were there. I mean, I woke up and uh, smelled something I'd never smelled before, gunpowder. And I looked out the window. We had like a little French balcony on my room. And we were, lived right under Hradšiny, the, the castle, Prague Castle. And uh, there's a line of tanks with Russian soldiers, you know, kind of lying about. And um, my father grabbed me and threw me back into the room and tied a white uh, bedspread, you know, around the, the balcony. And uh, he and my mom spent maybe an hour or two burning everything in the house, every shred of paper in the house. They burned in the fireplace. And after a while, you know, there's a knock on the door, and someone my father knew. And he's dressed in another uniform that, you know, and a KGB uniform, and they took my dad away. And um, I decided at that point to go out the back window with my Czech friends. And um, You were 13. Yeah. So we were down in uh, Venceslas Square, and uh, the Russians who had occupied the square were young Slavs. Okay. And the Czechs all spoke Russian. So, I mean, they were telling these kids, go home, we don't want you. And you could see real confusion on their faces because they had been told they're coming to rescue, you know, the Czech uh, people from uh, dictatorship, fascist dictatorship. So... um, we're throwing paper balls at at these guys, and you know it. it I wouldn't say it was frivolous, but I mean, it, it, nobody was going to get killed. They weren't right. pointing their guns at us. Well, they all left that night. The, the, the whatever unit it was just pulled out, and the next morning a new unit came in, and uh, they were all Asiatic uh, from one of the stands, and they didn't understand a bloody word of Russian, and they started shooting people. How empires operate, right? So that was the first time I saw somebody actually die, I mean, get killed. And um, that was pretty sobering. So everybody started running, and uh, I knew enough not to go into the subway. How? I I just knew enough not to go into the subway. Actually, how I had read a story, Mila 18 by Leon Uris, about how the sewers that were used by the Warsaw Ghetto fighters and how the Germans uh, gassed them out. They dropped you know, barbed wire down the sewers and just ran uh, truck exhaust into the sewers. You know? and so I, I remembered that incident So in the, the story in Mila 18. Uh, and, and what happened was the Russians pretty much did the same thing. They just blocked all the exits to the subway and put the hose put the exhaust hoses you know into the subway these everybody started coming out coughing and choking and they were just gunned down when they came out so and these were just average people or? yeah i mean just people you know people who had been protesting people who were on the street whatever right and so finally that night i got home and uh you know it was cruel what i'd done to my mother i mean her husband's taken away and her son disappears so i came home covered in blood and i don't know what else and 
first thing she did was just touch me to make sure I was okay. God. And I, you know, said, is dad home? And she said, no, not yet. That's all she said. And um, I'll roast in hell for leaving her that way. That was wrong. So, so from that moment, you, you understood that? My father, when we left, my, they never laid a hand on my father. They knew exactly who he talked to. He drank vodka with this guy for two days. I mean, it, it was no big deal. <laughs> okay. Um, when we left, we were on the last civilian flight out of uh, Prague. It was a Lufthansa 727 flanked by Russian jets, MiG-21s. And as the, as the plane banked around uh, Prague, and city, parts of the city were on fire, my father just looked at me and said, what have you learned from this? And I thought about it, and I looked at him, and I said, if you're weak, you're dead. He said, you're right. He said, the victors write the story. Oh, God. He okay. said, there's no ethics except survival. He said, you understand that? Don't show any pity. You survive by any means possible. He said, the only ethics you follow, he said, are the ethics of survival and the ethics of protecting your people that's it that's it no pity and i i i understood what he meant by i that. i i see the wisdom in that i mean I, I do especially the older i get look at the world and i'm not anymore i mean i have sort of a like in most young people i was um convinced or moved by leftist ideals mm -hmm. right which is if you spread enough love and compassion in the world and you strive to spread that as much as possible, then I mean, that is the point of life, right? Uh, but Viet Vietnam burned that out of me. What's that, Vietnam? Okay. Yeah, Vietnam burned that out of me. What do you mean? Um, How old were you? With? I, I was draft age. Okay. And I wanted to go. <laughs> and, uh, you know, my brother went, my father went. And my sister was a... A leftist, you know, so she was, you know, running some halfway house up in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan, for draft dodgers en route to Canada. Yeah. And um, my father came back and just said, you're not going. And I said, why? He said, because we're not there to win. He said, I've seen this movie before. Mm. I was in Korea. He lost all his friends in Korea when a field hospital was overrun. And um, so... He was very jaundiced as far as the military and the politicians were concerned. He was quite blunt with me. He said, look, if Congress, if, if Congress wants to declare war and the congressmen and senators will agree to send their sons to war, he said, I have no problem allowing you to go. But he said, this is a glorified police action. Mm -hmm. He said, people are making money out of this. He mm -hmm. said, you don't understand how these things work. Hmm. This is not just the domino th theory, you know, of successive states falling to communism. He said, big business is involved with this. I mean, he, he was sufficiently high in the pecking order, in the food chain, to really understand what was going on. Meaning the point of the war wasn't some sort of higher moral good. No, of, it wasn't at all. It was, it was, it was about it was, making money. It was about making money. Right. It was about okay. uh, world uh, supremacy. You know, it was, it was uh, the, the business of empire. It wasn't a defensive democracy. How could you say that South Vietnam was a democracy? Well, you could say, look, it isn't a democracy now, but 
like Korea eventually and Taiwan eventually will fight to keep it a democracy. Fine, declare war. Move in, defend the country, clean it up if you have to. Don't accommodate yourself to their corruption. Clean it up and and leave it a better place if that's what you want to do. Sound like Iraq? Hmm. Huh? Hmm. Yeah, it sounds like Iraq. Same bullshit. Hmm. Which was about oil, let's be clear about this, you know. And in Vietnam, it was, it was, there were similar strategic, geostrategic reasons for going in. They had nothing to do with the domino theory. But um, I wanted to go, so he said, no, you can't go. So, okay, so, but that's, that's precisely, it's, it's shit like that. You know, the other day I was looking up, um, you'll find this, maybe funny, but I recorded a podcast with Ehud Olmert. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, I'm curious about his corruption uh, past, um, which he firmly denies, by the way. Of course. <laughs> I, I got a lot of that in prison also. Everyone was – it's amazing. There, it's, it's like you're living in a goddamn convent. Everybody is pure and innocent and uncorruptible. And, you know, they would, they would clasp their pearls and gasp in vapor and say, me? I murdered all these people? Are you kidding? Yes, I was there. Yes, they caught me with the gun. Yes, I hated all of them, but I didn't do it. <laughs> Who are you going to believe, you or me or your lying eyes? You know, right, that right, joke. Right, right, right. So what did good old Ahu No, no, so anyway, I was, I was looking up, you yeah. know, corruption because it's, it's interesting to me. And there's some organization that tracks mm-hmm, mm-hmm. levels of corruption in the world and uh, they had this sort of heat map, like right. uh, countries by color, and so I don't know. Was yellow. Israel on fire? <laughs> Was it burned out? Looked like a cigarette had been put out on it. Doing reasonably well compared to the rest of the world. Well, what Burkina Faso? Uh, I'm saying most of the world apparently scores very high on on these corruption measures. Which is to your point, right? Like that that we have this propensity to towards corruption and. Not pursuing that sort of that that higher ideal of spreading love and compassion. It's more of well, give me mine, or even what you say, right? This sort of we're scared animals, right? Us people, we're all afraid to die, mm-hmm. and we just do what we can to keep that eventuality at bay. And okay. S- and sometimes what if, what what that can lead to is some pretty fucked up shit. Like a lot of the time, the problem, especially I, in a world where it's like nature and the world itself and other people are out to get you and destroy you. I think, with the case of Ehud Omer, you're dealing with another pathology. You're dealing with somebody who was one of the Likud princelings, who felt <laughs> that um, his ascension to power was a given, a right. Mm. It wasn't something he had to earn. And if you look at the pro- at his progression over time in in government, he had no north pole. I mean, he had no north star. Sorry, he mm-hmm. had no north star. He had no fixed ideology. It was always um, malleable mm-hmm. to the situation. And a person that doesn't have a fixed point. Um, in what, however you define it, is liable to fall into a corruption trap mm. because it's just one more you know way to get over. And with him, 
Yes, he can scream and yell all he wants about his innocence. And full disclosure, you know, he doesn't like me. And so, okay, fine, I don't like him either. Should he have been uh, convicted? Um, I don't know. I, honestly, I don't know. From what I understand of the criminal justice system in this country, um, you can't believe anything they say. So is it possible that he was innocent? Is it possible that he was framed? Is it possible that he was maybe, uh, uh, there was a case of selective prosecution in his case? Is that possible? Yes. In this country, yes, it definitely is possible. Um, so, Which is terrifying. Which is terrifying, yes. This is why, you know, I would wish that he would quit um, professing his innocence. And if he truly believes that he was wrongly uh, convicted of a crime that he did not commit, then he, above all, should be in favor of judicial reform. Mm. He, above all, should be in favor of cleaning up the prosecutor's office. He, above all, should say there's something rotten in our, in our judiciary, in our prosecutorial services, and we need to start afresh. We need to start over. We need to clean this crap out and, and get a real justice system in place, a responsible justice. But he won't do that. Because? Because um, he's part of the system. He still is. So while he professes his own innocence— you know, he can't understand that he might have been the victim of a system that he himself is still defending. So unless and until he comes clean and says, um, okay, I mean, I feel that I'm innocent. I feel that I was, that in my case was a, an instance of selective prosecution. And I believe now in judicial reform because of what happened to me. I would say... Fine, okay. I may think you're a lousy son of a bitch, a real dog, um, but okay, at least I have respect for the fact that you understand that the system did this to you, and now you're going to, to try to clean it up. Quit saying, you know, poor me, and say, okay, I experienced what so many other people experienced. I'm going I'm to try to help clean the matter up. Okay. But he won't do that. He won't. So it sounds it's would I be wrong in suggesting that you think there's something corrupt at the fundamental level of this country from the start, yeah, okay, so what is that? This country basically was run was started by a bunch of i I'll be blunt with you left wing thugs who created the appearance of a democracy when it Israel was anything but that. When I'm asked, is Israel a democracy? Was Israel, is Israel a democracy? I would say, well, in comparison to our neighbors, yeah. Mm. But in comparison to what I would consider even a, a near nor normal uh, example of a democracy or model of a democracy, no, we're not. And we never were. This country was run by the left wing, and they ran it like a dictatorship. And what they did to this country was appalling, whether it was with the, the Yemenites, 
or the Iraqis that came or the Moroccans, the theft of children, the experiments with radioactivity on Moroccan children. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And for a while, believe it or not, the judicial system here tried to make a stand. Um, but with Judge Justice Aharon Barak, uh, who accomplished a judicial coup d'etat during his, his term of office, um, we ceased to be a democracy. Why, and we became a, a juristocracy. But again, to, to go back to the, the fundamental problem in this country. The fundamental problem in this country was you had a bunch of leftist thugs um, that took over the country, mm -hmm. who eliminated, many times physically eliminated the right wing, what they perceived to be the right wing threat, uh, dehumanized them, marginalized them, discriminated against them. It was, in, in, in essence, a, an Ashkenazi hierarchy, left-wing Ashkenazi hierarchy, that set this whole country up for their pleasure. And you and see that still playing out today? Well, I see right now that these protesters are the last gasp of that group mm -hmm. right now. Make no mistake about it, these demonstrations are not about democracy at all. Um, you don't think they have any points at all? No, none. None? Zero? None, zero. Negative zero. Negative zero. I've talked to so many of them. I've tried to reason with so many. I've tried to understand where they're coming from. Mm -hmm. At best, they are just criminally naive. And at worst, they're basically wrapping their efforts to maintain power um, in, in a cloak of democracy, right? And it's anything but that. If you look at what the purpose of judicial reform in this country is about, it's actually trying to create circumstances where democracy can function at some level. Yeah. You can't have a judicial system that is a law unto itself. You can't have self-perpetuating law unto itself. You, you can't have a system of government where the uh, legal advisors, uh, the attorney general certainly, but and the legal various legal advisors are basically the government. Yeah, it's not a democracy. I think the only issue I ever had was the uh, the supermajority, like that that part. That essentially, whatever the whatever the government passes ha can only be overruled by. Okay, some. my my suggestion, mm -hmm. which I wish had been adopted, was we can get around that problem. We we don't we can get around the supermajority. Mm -hmm. How? If a case, for example, is decided by a judge or two judges or three judges, the Knesset can ask for what's called in, in the, United in the uh, common law system an en banc hearing where you have all the justices rule on that case. Mm -hmm. Now, if you are careful in judicial selection, okay, yeah, you're looking at me. You know, it's, no, it's okay. It's I'm a stack. It's a stacked court. But if you're looking at a stacked court, you have at least the possibility of the judges, the justices, saying, "We like this ruling. Sorry, you know, we mm -hmm. understand it runs against your conservative grain, but we like this ruling, mm -hmm. and we're going to support it." In many other cases, a conservative majority 
in the uh, judiciary, in the high court, will basically do what a supermajority uh, was meant to do in overturning a verdict or a, a decision that um, wasn't acceptable. Mm-hmm. Now, we have a situation like that right now in the United States. With right. Ba- right? And if, it, if you notice, it's really interesting what just happened. There were three ca- – I think there were three cases, landmark cases, that you know, have sent the Democrats into a tizzy right now. Right. Okay. Let's forget the issues for, for the moment. Okay. Let's look at what the president and the Democrats have said bearing in mind the fact that they've been leading the charge against judicial reform. Here. Here, okay. okay. Biden says, you know, the judges should be replaced in the United States because they don't reflect the will of the people. Other Democrats, uh, like AOC, want some of these judges impeached. Some of them want them imprisoned. If you listen to what they're saying... It sounds remarkably familiar. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Why? Well, because the rulings didn't go their way. I'm not making uh, a, a statement as to whether these decisions were right, wrong, or in you know whatever. The fact of the matter is, in the American system of government, um, the majority party generally gets to select the judges which is, they, you know, it's claimed as a reflection of the will of the people. I can go that far. Look, is there a form of law that is unique and is value-free, partisan-free? Um, no, it, it, there isn't. Of course. I mean, laws are made by people. And when you have a majority of people that want to go a certain way with their laws, that's what the rulings will reflect generally. Yeah. Okay. So here you have a situation where the, the leftists in the United States were condemning this current government here in Israel for doing exactly what they now want to do. Yeah. So the whole thing is a joke. Honest to God, it's a joke. I've asked friends of mine, when I get together with them, these are leftists, hardcore leftists. Mm-hmm. Did we have a democratic uh, election in the last election? Yes. Okay. You guys lost, right? Mm-hmm. Get over it. <laughs> and their answer to me is, no, you don't understand. People like you um, aren't capable of running a, a 21st century right. technological democracy. Right. I right. said, what do you mean by people like me? Right. What go. does that mean? There. Yeah. That's where it comes out. That's what it comes down isn't it, to. Isn't it funny? It's kind of ironic how um, those people sound very much like the Trump supporters who say, you know, I want my country back. Exactly. Oh, no, it's not ironic. It is the truth. Yeah. Look. No, but, but, but the, we, but the we, left, we, leftists we, say, oh, no, we, this, is only, this is only for the right-wing conservative terms, right, so I no, want but my country back. We but, know, the, the problem yeah. is, look, I've been accused of being a, an, an anti-liberal. And illiberal mm-hmm. myself. I'm not. I'm an anti-progressive. There's a difference. Sure. I happen to like liberal politics. It's the soft side of me. I like lib- I believe that the country has an obligation to help disadvantaged citizens. Right. In whatever constructive way they can. Right. I'm not bleeding hard. I think it's it's very calculated. You ri- uh, you know a rising tide lifts all ships. So everybody should be given a chance to. 
um, realize their their potential. Yeah, and you okay? also you don't want a society where no everyone is suffering and only you know the elite right. gain. No, no, but elite. I do believe in a meritocracy, which again separates me from the progressives. The progressive, the, actually, it's just like the Bolsheviks and the Mensheviks. The, the biggest enemy of the Bolsheviks were the socialists. Because? Because, because they represented an alternative view, mm. left-wing view, mm -hmm. that was more civilized. Okay. The progressives, the biggest enemy of the progressives are not the, the, the MAGA types, Neanderthals, not, not them, but the liberals. And if you look and see what's happened in the United States right now, it's the liberals that have been cowed yeah. into silence. Yeah. And the progressives know precisely what they're doing. By do they, are, they are marginalizing them to the point of eliminating them politically. Right. Right? So here, I am not opposed to the classic labor party. You know, the people of Golda Meir, the people of Mosa Dayan, and the rest of them, Yitzhak Rabin even. Okay, I'm opposed to this new generation of progressives that have now moved into the political, our political life here and are completely trying, they're trying to redefine what the nature of our society is and what the nature of our political establishment is. I, I so that, that's been, I think, well established in the U.S., but who's doing that in Israel? It's, it's the hard left and the media. No, 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 the, the, the media. When you have people, look, you do have people like Barack, who I believe, personal feeling, should be in jail right now for subversion, Ehud Barak. Mm. Um, I believe that uh, people like Yalon, Buji Yalon, uh, people like Gantz even, people like Yair Lapid, they also deserve a prison cell. Jesus. Yeah, all of them. Why? I believe, I'll get to that, I believe that the people who are running the protests right now also deserve a prison cell. Come on. Yeah, Why? Look, we have laws on the books right now mm -hmm. that state if you block a road, if you block a railway, if you block an airport, uh, you, you will go to jail. But the law right now is being selectively enforced. If you want to protest, fine. Knock yourself out. Stay out of the roads. Mm. These people lost an election. And so now they're saying we will do everything we, we think we should do to overturn not just judicial reform, but the results of a democratic election. Mm -hmm. This is an attempted coup. So it's not the fact that they oppose the government. It's not the fact that they oppose judicial review. It's the fact that their tactics and, and ultimately their strategy is undemocrat are undemocratic. There are ways of overturning the results of an election that doesn't involve tearing a country to pieces. We are they, they, they have redefined what this whole argument is about. Rather than admitting it's about maintaining power, they're saying it's about the defense of democracy. I'm sorry. What they're doing is undemocratic. So you, 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 you can't impose your opinion on the will of the country. Yeah, I'm sorry if soldiers, for example, reservists, feel that they can't defend the country because uh, there's an unpopular government. I'm sorry. You know, in the United States, when, when a soldier um, takes his oath, 
He promises to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Well, we don't have a Constitution here. So I've asked some of the leading strikers, military strikers, okay, we don't have a Constitution. Would you agree to simply defend the land and people of Israel Mm -hmm. without Alpi Torah Israel, just the land and people of Israel? And the answer I've gotten consistently is no. I say, okay, what would you defend? What, what concept of a country would you defend? And the answer has been a, um, a Jewish and democratic state. And I, you know, my response to that was, look, guys, your concept of a democracy and my concept of a democracy aren't the same. They aren't the same. What you're doing, in effect, is what the Germans called a putsch. You, you cannot claim to be a patriot on conditional terms. You either love your country and your people, irrespective of their political orientation, or you don't, in which case you shouldn't be doing reserve work and you shouldn't be in the military. So that's, so, that's the, the unresolved tension. The perpetual tension of this country is that the Judaism bit and the democracy bit. Okay, that, this is the argument over the identity of the state. Precisely. Okay. Now, which, which you even touched on right now. You said your definition of a democracy and their definition of democracies are different. totally different, and their definition of Judaism and my definition of Judaism are very different. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. There are there are certain. I I would claim that. Let me let me back up for a second. I've I've been in a lot of debates and discussions about uh, the Haredi community's resistance to doing any that kind of national service or doing military service. Yeah. And I've had the same discussions, by the way, with Arab Israelis, hmm. which has been very interesting. And um, the, the position that I've kind of boiled down right now to, to defending is the following. Everybody, irrespective of their religious affiliation uh, or their political views, if you are a citizen, owes service to the country. What type of service this entails is up to you. If you want to join the military, go ahead, join the military. If you want to do national service of some type, uh, of your choosing, great, go right ahead. But you have to do something. You can't say, as the Germans would say, ohne mich, without me. You you don't have a society then. You have a bunch of uh, thieves saying, yeah, I want support from the state, but I'm not willing to give anything back. Or they make specious arguments um, that, well, we, we have, you know, uh, various organizations we support in the community, um, and they do a lot of good, and okay, fine, I'm sorry. You this know, is, yeah, is, th- leave, leave that out of this it. This is the Vietnam War. So yeah, yeah, le- le- leave yeah. that out of it. Okay. Um, and I've said as much to the Arab Israelis as well that I've had discussions with, and I get no pushback from them at all, mm-hmm. from the ones that I've talked to. Okay, so right now, this isn't so much my definition of religion as it is my definition of patriotism. Mm-hmm. So let's leave that to the side. Um, you owe the country some form of national service. Okay. As far as religion is concerned, I don't want to parse the concept by saying, well, you know, we have reform, we have conservative, we have all just 
reconstructionist, all kinds. No, look. What I've tried to get people to understand is that the reform movement um, right now, in the liberal movement, but actually it's the progressive Jewish movement in the United States, has been responsible for the what I call the auto-genocide of the American Jewish community. Yeah. The, the reform movement is more a political movement than it is a religious movement. And, okay... Um, what do you mean? I mean, I know that the, both, both have their own metaphysics, but one is grounded... I don't accept extremes, right or left. Look, I've had the same discussion with Haredi leaders in New York that didn't end well for me <laughs> by saying, you know... You you talk a very good game. Why don't you go home? Why don't you go back to Israel? Right. Okay. And they say no. We're not leaving until the Moshiach comes, which is bullshit, because it's a self it's a self fulfilling type of rationalization for why you like to live in Galut, right? So my answer to them was and still is well maybe Moshiach is waiting for you. You know, for you to take the first move to go home and become part of the third Jewish commonwealth. And the argument from that side is it's a traif government. It's, um, you know, it's not a Jewish country. You know what? Well, then go home and make it so if that's what you believe. Don't stay in Galut and throw stones at, at my country, our country, because it doesn't conform to your views of religion. You have a problem with that? Then go home and change it the democratic way. I don't want to compel anybody to do anything. Mm -hmm. Okay? I know how that what what that what results from from compulsion. What I want to do is make people understand that there are certain basic beliefs that we hold mm -hmm. that should be expressed and acted upon by the government. Now, people say like what? Well, I'll choose one one example. Shabbat. That's a big one? It's a very big one. I remember I was walking down the street one day. This was after Esther, Aliyah Shalom had died. I was going to meet some friends for a, a Malava Malka at the Inbal Hotel. It was still Shabbat. So I was just walking down there. Yeah. And a carload of people, looked like a clown car, <laughs> pulled up next to me. And, you know, they turned the radio down and they were saying, oh, Yonatan, you know, we're so happy you're home and, you know, fine. You're in a car with the radio on. The girls are half naked, you know, okay, fine. And I just looked, I smiled at them and I said, thank you, Shabbat Shalom. And they just looked at me and um, looked down and said, Shabbat Shalom, and drove off. I think I accomplished more by being polite and civilized than by screaming at them or, God forbid, throwing a rock at them or whatever. Right. You don't convince somebody uh, to change their views with force. You never do. Sure. No, it's persuasion. Uh, this is why yeah, I believe yeah. uh, Esther, who was my mora, really schooled me in the beliefs of uh, Rav HaKohen Cook. Avram Cohen Cook. It's just her, anyone that doesn't know, Esther was your ex-wife. My, my, uh, my, my deceased wife. Yeah. And she said, you never scream at anybody, you never curse at anybody, you never attack anybody um, for not being Jewish enough. Because, frankly, 
what is being Jewish enough? Right. She said, the minute you think you're the paragon of Jewish virtue, you better think again because there's somebody more observant than you are. Then it's, what? It's also it's a, it's a, so interesting how it's such an elastic term. I mean, even you ask a Karai Jew, right, who just follows whatever's written in the Bible and then nothing else uh, after that, what what they think about all, all of us? They're like, yeah, those guys are are, are fake, or they're not. You know, Correct. Not the real or Natura Carta. Right. Oh yeah. Sure. I mean, sure, I've, sure. I've boy, I've in New York, I had a real experience with them. Yeah. The point of the matter is, there yeah, are, there is no one authority that says the, that's cor- what a real there, Jew is. There, you know? there is no. But there are certain things yeah. that we can agree on. Yes. So, for example, when it comes to Shabbat, let's return to that. Um, do public uh, transportation systems work? This is my opinion. No. If you do private uh, transportation systems work, yes, if, if they want it. Yeah. Uh, can people ride their cars on Shabbat? Yes, of course. It's, it's up to them. Observance is up to them. But as far as the state is concerned, the state should stand for something. So... When a city, for example, or a municipality or a community says, you know, we're not going to have public transportation, but we have a private bus system that will work, I have no problem with that because it doesn't represent the state. The, the Chilul Shabbat doesn't, isn't, isn't coming from the state. Mm-hmm. If these people want to do it, f- fine. Right. It's up to them. Right, right. On the issue of Kashrut, it's the same issue. I'm adamantly opposed to Zohar. And Sohar and some of the other organizations that are trying to, quote, liberalize Kashrut. I know enough about this system to know that this whole business with Sohar is a money grab. This is what they're doing. Uh, the chief rabbi of Petach Tikva, uh, Harav uh, Micha Halevi, has come up with a, an improvement of the Kashrut system in, uh, in Petach Tikva that does away with the corruption. And it works. Everybody wins. And there's such resistance now to him um, generalizing this system to the country. You have to really wonder, like, what what really is going on with this call for kashrut reform? On the issue of marriage, I mean, this is a real hot-button issue. I believe very strongly that it should be under the supervision of the Rabbanut, but we need changes. Um, we need to kind of modernize the system. Um, the The reason why I'm in favor of maintaining it under a an updated or modernized Rabbanut is because the minute you start having different services and different standards of marriage, it, things get very complicated. And a generation or two down the line, you're going to have problems with people saying, wait a second, you marry, who did you marry? Who did your grandmother marry? Mm. You're not Jewish. Mm. So I'm for what I call normative standardization, where I completely discount Reform Judaism as a cult and as a sect, and I also discount and reject their right-wing equivalents. We have to have some shared normative values and those values have to be reflected in state politics, right. or state policy, rather. Right, right. As far as individuals are concerned, it's up to them. If they want to go to Cyprus and get married, okay, go to Cyprus and get married. I just don't want it done here in this country. Mm-hmm. 
Um, should it be recognized? Yeah, I mean, that's just the way things work. You want to get married in Cyprus? Okay, we have a lot of people that get married in civil ceremonies overseas. And they come here. Are they married? Of course they're married. Are they married according to Jewish law? No, but that's on them. That's on them. The state doesn't have a right to say, no, you're not married because you didn't get married by a rabbi. You got married by the mayor of you know, Baltimore or something. Mm-hmm. Sorry, you, you can't have it both ways. So I, I think this, this battle for the Jewish identity of the state is one that can be resolved equitably if we understand one essential thing, and that is the progressives and their version of Judaism is toxic. It just is toxic. What, what, what does that even mean? What, what is does their that mean? It, it, it means the acceptance of homosexuality. Yeah, I know. I'm sounding like somebody representing the Noam party right now. Um, deviancy. I'll leave it under that. Um, oh, come on. It means, yeah. Wow. Yeah. What's wrong with homosexuality? Um, if you, as an individual, want to be a, a homosexual, that's fine. What do you mean want to be? Is. I'll leave it at that. Okay. Is okay. a homosexual. Yeah. That's fine. It shouldn't be discriminated against. Okay. Uh, he shouldn't be, um, certainly he shouldn't be threatened and he shouldn't be injured in any way for his belief. He okay. shouldn't be prejudiced in terms of employment. By the way, I don't think you hate gay people, but go on. No, I, I don't at all. Um, what I hate is having somebody else's values rammed down my throat. I don't like that. And when it comes to homosexuality, uh, LGBT. Q, whatever, whatever goes on or not, it goes goes by now. I don't like the corrosive effects that it has on free speech, on pushback, on uh, my right as a parent to have my child taught according to my values in school. If you want to have a pride parade in Tel Aviv and the people in Tel Aviv agree to it, fine. The last time I saw a poll taken in in Jerusalem, the overwhelming majority of people opposed the Pride Parade. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't think they should hold it here. Mm. Um, So it's a reflection, again, of of popular will. Now, you say, you know, what is the harm in recognizing um, homosexuality as a valid lifestyle or... You know, as a value or as a an acceptable um, social um, preference for 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 a community to follow or to accept. And I'm kind of old fashioned in this in this belief. What I saw in prison as a result of homosexuality was probably the most horrible thing I've ever seen in my life. Now, again, context is everything. But I, I will not have someone tell me that I have to accept a pride flag flying outside a municipal building because of, well, you know, that's what we demand. Wait, g- give me the context here. What, what did you see in prison that, that scarred you so... Um, I saw the corrosive effects that homosexuality can have on 
on a society. Now, I'll admit straight away, you know, that was not a a normal society. Right. It was not reflective of, you know, a conventional environment. But you all. do you do see do, do you see parallels between what prison society is like and normal society were but, you know, we kind of live in a fantasy land in the real world, and that's actually the real world? Yeah, actually, they're reflections of, of each other. Mm. Um, I've, look, I had a situation when I was in the Navy where uh, there was an, a fellow officer in my unit that was definitely gay. Okay. And this was at a time when you go to prison in the Navy for being gay. Oh, wow. No question. You were you're going to to prison. Robert Yud. Thank you. Yeah. So. Thank you. So. He called me one day, on the weekend, and he was obviously drunk. And he was confessing to me. Okay. And I said, "Where are you right now?" And he was at work. And I said, "Shut up." and get off the phone because all the phones are monitored where we were. It was a highly secure facility. Okay. So he kind of sobered up and, okay, fine. Now I have a problem. You know, he, let me back up. He was a very fine officer. He was a very gifted analyst. He contributed tremendously to the effectiveness of our outfit. Mm-hmm. And I would never consider him uh, predisposed to acts of treason in order to cover up his sexual orientation. Okay. Is, he couldn't be blackmailed. Okay. Okay, so I called my dad. <laughs> I said, what do I do? He said, you're going to get called in on Monday, and uh, you're already at that point suspect that you didn't come in yourself and I said well I'm very uncomfortable with informing on this guy I said I don't like his lifestyle I don't approve of it um, I, I, I can't do anything to endorse it but I said I don't think that he should lose his job over this mm -hmm. this is crazy mm -hmm. what he's doing he's doing it as a private person the, the, the law should be changed yeah And my father said, well, you're not in a position to change the law. So he said, I want to ask you a simple question. Are your values strong enough to live with the consequences of you not saying anything? And it made me pause. And I said, um, yes. Okay. I, I, I don't want to contribute to this man's uh, imprisonment. Again, I told my dad, I don't agree with what he, his lifestyle, but I, I can't bring myself to, he said, what, Moser, another Jew? He, I said, well, he's not Jewish, but he said, I, he said, well, it's the same, Moser, another human being. And I said, yeah, I'm not made to rat on somebody. Right. I said, you know, if he were preying on children, uh, that's another story. Sure. But I said, this is not the case. So... Monday morning rolled around, and I was walking up the stairs. I did, still didn't know what I was going to do, and uh, one of the petty officers came out and said, the boss wants to see you. I said, okay, here we go. 
so I walked in and sat down, and um, he said, you got something to tell me? I said, well, I really feel terrible bringing this up. It involves um, outing an individual. And he said, mm-hmm, so tell me all about it. I said, well, what do you do when your commanding officer is cheating on his wife with his secretary? <laughs> yeah, no I went sideways. <laughs> oh, wow. And Was that him? Yeah. <laughs> so yes. he said, we have a tape. And I said, mm, we've got other things as well. You, you've been very um, open and irresponsible in your oh extramarital relations, which is, crim which is a criminal act under the UCMJ. Holy shit. So I said, we have what's called a Mexican standoff. What are we going to do? Are you going to pull or I'm going to pull? Or are we going to pull together or what? So he just looked at me and I said, I really have to get back to work right now. So why don't we just forget this never happened? Is that okay? And he said, you're a homosexual, aren't you? And I said, no, I'm not. But if it means defending one, then I'll defend one. And he said, so you're a queer. I said, are you hitting on me then? Is that your problem? I said, you want me to be one? I said, what, are you bisexual? Right. So he just, you know, dismissed me at that point. And I, I came home at the end of the day. I went to a payphone, and I called payphone. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I yeah, called yeah, my yeah. Uh, father and told him what I and he would just roared laughing. He said, "When'd you come up with that bullshit?" And I said, "The minute I walked into his office, I saw his secretary there, and I suddenly realized, wait a second, this is rank hypocrisy." You, you keep, you know. Wait, you knew for a fact. Everybody or? knew. Okay, okay. You weren't just making this up. No. Okay. okay. I mean, I that would have been a, a hail mary pass if I had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, no. I mean, it was pretty flagrant what was going on. So. Wow. Um, so okay, but so it's not the it's not the 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 act itself of homosexuality. It's the it's the forcing the you must accept everything and it should be you know on full display. Yeah, at all times, I don't like that. Okay. I mean, I don't even like. You know, heterosexual couples pawing over each other in public. Right. You know, some sense of decorum, please. You know, it's kind of the glue of society. Decorum. Well, when you're married, that goes away, so it's fine. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wouldn't go so far as to making a video about it. I mean, I know there's some couples that like to do that, you know, but no. Um, so, you know, these are issues that I wish we could discuss. Um, at a lower temperature. Yeah. But, you know, the, the argument is should homosexuals... I mean, I, we just saw... Rivka, my wife, and I just saw a, a video of two gay men receiving a baby that was put up for adoption. And um, Rivka, you know, asked me, what do you think about this? You know, because it's the law now in Israel. You know, gay couples couldn't, can adopt children. Yeah. And... I have a problem with that, and I'm embarrassed I have a problem with that. Um, because I told her, 
at least you know the baby is is going into a loving family right however you define the family it is a loving family the baby will be you know brought up raised cared for loved whatever yeah but i i don't i'm uncomfortable i am i have to admit be honest with you be candid i'm i'm uncomfortable with um gay marriage adopts you know adoption practices mm-hmm. um that's me can i defend it the only way i can defend it is is by saying according to my values my values it's wrong now if the country which they did voted on this and they said it then it's the law of the land if i have a pro- real problem with it then i should change the law yeah but i'm not going to take that kid away from these people they 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 adopt legally adopted a child i i can't tell them no unless i change the law and then what do I go and then take the kid away from them? Right. This, this becomes a Solomonic issue. And it's the nature of our society right now. I mean, I'm not dogmatic. The- I, I understand people are involved with this. Human beings are involved with this. And you, you have to bear that in mind. You yeah. can't be cruel to people. Right. But on the other hand, if you feel that your values have any merit and, the, and they, they deserve to be defended – then again, when you pass laws, they should be humane laws. So if you make this law, if you change the law, it shouldn't be retroactive. I'm sorry. I mean, I know people on the far right would be horrified by what I'm saying, but we are we should be a nation of laws. Right, wrong, or indifferent, we should be a, a nation of uniformly enforced laws. And if these two men adopted this child legally, well, that's the law. I'm sorry. You want to change the law democratically? Yeah. Fine. I would be in favor of changing it, um, but not to make it retroactive. One of the, one of the first episodes I did was um, I, um, I talked to this friend of mine, Yoav Reisler. He's, um, he is the son of, I think, the first lesbian couple to have kids in Israel. Mm-hmm. And we talked about the um, the effects that had on him. Like growing up, he was teased and bullied because he had no dad, and he was always he always felt more comfortable around women than he did mm-hmm. around boys because he associated boys with bullying and women with you know care and love and all that kind of stuff. He's gay actually, um, and w- one of the things that that you know I remember everything from every conversation I have with him. It's he goes around walking the streets looking to see if he can recognize his biological father the donor and i thought why do you do that mm-hmm. you know and he said you know it's 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 we take it for granted that you and i everyone essentially has a father and a mother we know who those people are and he, he's this person that doesn't know that and so he he's like he feels human but not all the way like there's a, Look, there's a piece can I, of can I tell you how I react to that? Yeah. I think the two women involved were incredibly um, selfish and egotistical. Is every parent not selfish? No, no. In the sense that um, they denied him, um, first of all, the knowledge of who his father was. Uh, and I know I this know. is an issue with adoption in general, yeah. but 
who who his father was, and bringing him up in what I I consider again we're talking personal values. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What I consider um, an abnormal situation. Sure. Yeah, I believe that a family is a nuclear family. It should be a mother and a biological mother, biological father. Um, even that's in question now. Biological father, right. and um, that at least centers the kid. Look, my wife lost her husband um, a number of years ago, and she had to raise seven kids on her own um, without a father. And it had some really hard effects on her ability as a mother, as a parental figure, Mm. to really run the family with authority because there wasn't an Abba, there wasn't a father. Mm -hmm. And the kids were, you know, chided in school over, where's your daddy, you know, and all this stuff. And now I've noticed the difference that I've come into the picture with her youngest child who never really knew her father, her, mm. her husband. And this girl and I have bonded. She's my daughter. She, I don't call her my stepdaughter. Mm-hmm. She is my daughter. Mm-hmm. And her um, socialization process now is very different from her siblings. Right. Because she does have a father. Um, I'm trying to be. And so when you have a, a young man, a boy, a, a man, who grows up in a family like this, um, you know, get a dog. <laughs> what do I mean by that? The mother should have gotten the a dog. The mother should have just gotten a dog. I mean, or <sighs> the child. Yeah, I know. It's a hard statement. It's horrible. Yeah. I know. I, 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 How can you uh, deny someone, uh, you know? The, How can I deny someone the Imagine going the, through life and right. you, you never have. I mean... You know I know this. what it's like. Yeah, exactly. Trust it's, me, I know what it's I like. I know you know. Um, but you've never had anyone uh, actively denied? Well, yes, I, in prison. I was okay. actively denied the ability to have a child. Okay. And how it was, that it was immoral. So you, you can say, well, aren't you being inconsistent? Aren't you being hypocritical that what, what you demand for yourself, you're denying for somebody else? Yeah. But in this case, I'm looking at the probable or potential effects on a child. And in this respect, again, I'm the product of my upbringing. I'm the product of my biases, yeah. uh, my generation. And I, I look in, at these relationships, and I s- just go back to the need for a nuclear family. Should gay people, lesbians, be allowed to marry? I've been in a lot of arguments on this topic. <laughs> okay. I get involved in these things. I get dragged into these things because people expect me, I don't know, to have uh, either an ultra-liberal slash progressive view or one of these hellfire and brimstone views, and I don't. No, I mean, don't, no. I'm, I'm all over the place in many respects. It just means you're Should they a thinking get married? person. Should they get married? Yeah. Wow. Um, certainly not religiously. I don't believe so. As far as the state is concerned, my personal view is the state should not um, call it a marriage. They should call it some other thing that has all the same effects as a marriage, practical effects as a marriage, without calling it a marriage. It's not just some semantic difference? It's a semantic difference. 
Um, my right wing friends call me an idiot and my, my left wing <laughs> friends call me a bigot, you know, okay, fine. Maybe I'm both, but I'm trying to thread the needle <laughs> <Okay>. somehow, <laughs> you know, shades of gray, you know, my whole life has been shades of gray. But in, pra- so, but in practice though, it does sound like you accept a gay marriage. If, okay, just don't call it that, but live the exact same thing that everyone else is doing. Same I, rights, I, same. I cannot deny um, the existence of love right. between two people. It's not for me to say you can't love this person right. um, or you can't enter into a binding relationship with this person. However, I can say that the state will not, my version of the state will yeah. not condone this union being uh, characterized as a marriage. We can call it a union. We can call what, whatever you want to call it, as long as it has the same practical effects as a marriage, then, uh, okay, I, I can live with that. But I can't call it a marriage. Me, personally, I can't call it a marriage. You know, these are all really interesting issues that, you know, this country right now is involved with addressing. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing that in the midst of terrorism, uh, an Iranian nuclear threat, the BDS movement, the, the social injustices that are happening in this country right now, the, ju- you know, the, the judicial reform issues. Yet, this is yet another issue that's come up, the, the, the gay rights issue. And I would like us to just, I wish we could concentrate on what I consider the existential problem mm-hmm. right now, which is the Iranian bomb, and just delay everything else. Okay. I wish we could do that. Um, There's this great quote. Um, I think, so I heard it from Douglas Murray, who is this uh, English writer. He's really funny. He's very smart. I think he borrowed it from somewhere else, but something like... Um, you know, we'll be busy arguing whether there's such a thing as a, whether a man can get pregnant when the bombs from the mullahs are flying over our head and destroying all of our civilization. Correct. <laughs> no, no, that that's pretty much what I'm talking right, about exactly. right yeah, now. Yeah. Um, the problem right now is that we have a horrible government that was voted into office. Who did you vote for? Um, I voted the coup. If it makes you, uh, if you want me to go first, I'm kind of American, in the sense that I, I have, I have. That's a dodge. Okay. Okay. It's a dodge. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of American in the sense that you know you don't ask what religion you are, you don't ask what your salary is, you don't act, you know, don't ask who you're who you voted for. Okay. <laughs> and I'm I'm really resisting answering right now in terms of who I voted for. I'm proud that I've asked you a question that has made you squirm a little bit. So More than squirm. (laughs) More than squirm. Um, Clearly, I voted for the right. Okay. Okay. I I voted for the right. That's like more How far right? Right, Yeah, well, I didn't quite fall off the cliff, but I came pretty damn close. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Can I leave it at that and leave you to... uh, Look, I was... uh, I woke up one day and found out that I was on the Otsma ticket that my my friend, Itamar Ben-Gavir, had, I don't know, he put me on the ticket and... You know, I, it was embarrassing for me to, you know, 
tell issue a press release saying that while I appreciated his you know yeah. interest in me that I wasn't running for the Knesset because I suffered enough <laughs> in my life. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and I said one other thing which nobody reported, which was ha- I said having said that. Um, I admit that I'm probably the most appropriate person to be an MK because I've already been in prison. Oh. So, yeah, that wasn't that wasn't reported, uh, but it, it was in the press release. At any rate, <laughs> so um, yeah, I, I voted right, and I got something far less than that. And do I have a problem with Bibi? Look. I owe him, you know, there's a level of hakarat hatov because he, he and Yitzhak Rabin, uh, may his blood be avenged, were really the only two prime ministers that, that really fought to bring me home. Mm. So I have to parse my words of criticism right now. Bibi traditionally was the fulcrum of a government that had both left and right ministers. Mm-hmm. So his own political preferences really were shaded, obscured by this need for balance. Well, now he's the left, if in effect, the left wing. Mm. And what's happened is the laws, with, with regard to the protests, all I'm asking is that the laws be applied. Don't block the streets. Don't block railroads. Don't block emergency rooms. Don't do that. Protest? Yes, all you want. But follow the law. And his refusal to have the law applied is unacceptable to me Mm. and raises questions in my own mind as what his motives are in this regard. That? Yes, that. That is what raises questions. I, I have real problems with any leader cannot see the need, the pressing need, to have the law applied uniformly. But not his, not his trial. As far as the trial is concerned, um, I'm very uncomfortable with what he's been subjected to. I mm. have followed this trial very, very carefully. Okay. And I think the behavior... I'm not making a statement as to whether he's guilty or innocent. He's presumed innocent, and we should always remember that. Mm -hmm. And appearances can be deceiving, Mm -hmm. right? But I think that the behavior of the state prosecutor, uh, the justice ministry, and the police have been so bad that that nothing Bibi Netanyahu may have done of a criminal nature rises to or rises to their level mm. of of crimes against the state. I I I honestly believe you know people like Ronnie Alsheikh and others that were, you know who was the head of the police force they should be on trial for what they did. Um the uh, Mandelblit should be under investigation and should be indicted for what he did during the course of of the investigation with Bibi. What did they do that was so terrible? They intimidated witnesses in a way that reminded me of my own ordeal, uh, something along the lines of what authoritarian or totalitarian governments do to extract confessions. Mm. I mean, I I don't have to talk to any of the defense, um, any of the defendants in this case to know what they went through. I mean, they've, they've... really explained in horrible detail 
the ends to which um, the state prosecutor and police and the then attorney general went to secure the kind of confessions that would that they needed to go after Bibi. And again, it's the process that's very important. Mm. It, it just doesn't have to be legal. It has to look legal as well. So when you use torture, when you use threats, when you use um, false accusations in the media to intimidate a witness into confessing something that isn't true, this is the issue that should be addressed, not whether Bibi, you know, got cigars and, and champagne and gave um, right. you know, favors. And frankly, if he's guilty of everything that they said, I, you might as well start handing out, you know, traffic tickets, speeding tickets at the Indianapolis 500. Be very careful where you po- point the finger because when you point the finger, there are three more pointing back at you. Right. So the whole system is rotten. Right. So to say that this is selective prosecution <clears> – <throat> I think is self-evident. You probably so, like all those politicians who are calling for Netanyahu to go home and his head and stuff are guilty of this guilty whatever have done something the same yes stuff there's something before. so but still the but, guys but as far as BB is concerned the one th- problem I've had with him as a leader yep. is that he can't pull the trigger. You mean with Iran? with Iran or with the territories or with Gaza or the mixed cities or the drug problems in the, along the border with Egypt or the lawlessness in the Negev. You know, look, I've had a Likud Central Committee member say, you know, you're the type of guy we let out of the cage to take care of these problems and then put them back in. And I, you know, my response to that was, first of all, I'm not an animal. So don't refer to me as such. Second of all, you guys, by tolerating Bibi's indecision, are responsible for all these problems that we have right now. I mean, he's served longer than anybody else. Right. So, you know, he's tagged. It's your fault. It's your problem. You caused this. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the sin of omission in this case. So now, I mean, the situation in the territories, and I've written about this already, is spinning out of control. And we were having this gradual, what they call Lebanonization of, of the territories. Well, it's under his watch. What is he doing about it? Nothing. Well, we just had a... Uh, we, yeah, what did we have? This operation in Janine. No? Yeah, what did we have? We had a glorified raid. That's all. An in and out. Mm. The fact of the matter is, this is an enemy city. Half the population affiliates with either Hamas or Palestinian Islamic Jihad. When I've been asked, you know, what my approach to Janine should be, I've been very forthright in in saying we should basically concentrate the population from the surrounding supporting areas. We should tell the people you've got 24 hours to leave. If you want to leave, you can leave now. They should go through a vetting process when they leave. Their hands should be wiped for gunshot residue, GSR. If they have GSR, they're taken out back and shot. And I don't care how young they are. And then when the people that want to leave have been bused to Ramallah, where they're going to stay until they decide to leave the territories, 
then Janine and its adjoining refugee camp are flattened. Flattened. Okay, okay no, I'm gonna, no. I'm going to suspend my shock for a second. Give me the rationale. Why? Why do something like that? Because this? we are in a. We've put ourselves in a no-win situation. Where the army, I've called for a wholesale purge of the high command here in the Kyria. People have been calling for judicial reform. I'm calling, I've been calling for military reform. Mm. Because we don't have leaders, right, military leaders that understand what decisive action implies. They kick the can down the road. Okay. They manage the problem, the enemy, rather than annihilate the enemy. They, like prison wardens, just want to end the day without a, an escape or an officer murdered. And in the days following, in the wake of the Janine operation, all of these uh, char- characterizations of the high command have been used to describe the raid in Janine. We're just managing the problem. Do you think, though, that this is not the same trap as with Lebanon, where that that it the country's uh, leadership thought there was a military solution to what was is a you, political you know problem. What? There's always a military solution. Uh, in the now and nowadays, yes. There's always a military solution. Uh, yes, yes, but at what cost? At what price? I suppose at the enemy's cost. Sure, but total but cost. Even but in in this in our present moment let's say you start really just massacring people i'm not in favor of massacring people i want to be clear about that okay um and it's, the same scenario applies to aza as well um you give people a chance to leave in aza it's about 65 percent of the population want out um okay in the case of janine and it's a refugee camp adjoining refugee camp about equal about half uh, just want to live, want to get out. Unfortunately, this is war. Uh, Oslo is dead. The greatest crime we committed, as far as I'm concerned, is that we allowed Arafat and his bully boys back into the territories. The chieftain, the clan's chieftain, clan chieftains came to us and said, you don't know what you're doing. Mm. If you bring these guys back, we're going to get killed, and you're going to have a terrorist state on your border. So we'll accept... Um, limited autonomy. Just leave us alone, let us do our business, you know, and there won't be any terrorism or anything. And our betters in the government at the time uh, who were backing Oslo, idiots like Yossi Balin and others who were in favor, and Perez, that were in favor of this insanity known as Oslo, had the day instead. And, And here we are. And we allowed generation after generation after generation of Palestinian youths in the territory to be poisoned um, with Jew hatred to the point right now where, you know, you look at a Palestinian kid and you ask him for his views on Jews, not Israelis, Jews, and it sounds like Hitler Youth. Mm. Well, who, who allowed this to happen? Well, we did. Come on. We did. No, we allowed that, this to happen. Isn't that a bit too... Going no. too far with no, um, aren't you stripping Palestinians of their own agency as well? They came to us with a good solution, and we thought we knew better. And here we are. So, 
I'm not robbing them of agency. But it was our mistake. It was, it was our original. We're, we're guilty. We allowed these animals back in. Hmm. Even though we were warned by the people who live there, please don't do this. You don't know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, wait. So let's get back to this being a terrible government and how that relates to the Iran problem. Because you think well, that's... the Iran problem. In, in, look, again, it's a lack of decisive action. The army simply doesn't know how to do this, to think decisively. Um, we talk about a multi-front war. What are we actually talking about? We're talking about Iran. We're talking about Lebanon. We're talking about Syria. We're talking about the territories. We're talking about the mixed cities. We're talking about the Negev. We're talking about Aza. This is not a multi-front war. This is a nightmare. And Israel has never really fought a simultaneous multi-front war, possibly with the exception of 1948. And we barely survived that at great, great cost. Yes, 67 was multi-front, but it was staged. And yes, 73 was a multi-front, but even there, we, we were able to handle one front at a time. Mm-hmm. Now, the army and, and successive governments have allowed Hezbollah to build up a precision-guided conventional rocket force that is capable of inflicting a strategic defeat on Israel. By that I mean, what is a strategic defeat in this sense? Our power plants are knocked out, our water desalinization plants are knocked out, our water purification plants, sanitation plants are knocked out, our hospitals are knocked out. We're back in the Stone Age, basically. And the Army has already admitted, by the way, that in the event we we go full-scale, with this multi-front war, the civilian population's on its own. We don't have the resources to defend everything. Well, who's responsible for that? Mm. So my advice has been we have to start thinking about eliminating some of these fronts before we deal with Iran and Lebanon, which are the main ones, main problems. And it has to be done quickly. When it comes to Aza, I've already laid out very carefully a scenario. It's a one or one and a half week scenario where the bulk of the population leaves through Egypt, uh, which they usually just rob them and send them on their way, the Palestinians leaving Gaza. Um, And then Aza is subjected to Armageddon. Um, without one Israeli soldier crossing the border. What's the end result? The end result is uh, the country basically uh, is uh, annexed by Israel, Aza. It's finished. As far as the mixed cities, because that's another front, as far as the mixed cities are concerned, um, the call for a National Guard or what I call a territorial defense force has got to be adopted quickly. Um, Itamar Ben-Gvir has no power to do anything. Anything he says is shot down. I mean, he's, they've, they've boxed him into a corner. But what he's been calling for, many other people have been calling for as well. And uh, this kind of force has to be in the hundreds of thousands. Because it's not just 
keeping maintaining the peace in the mixed cities, it's also maintaining the security of our communications lines in the event of a war. Um, you know, where you have people blocking a road and throwing Molotov cocktails and maybe even shooting, and these people have to be gunned down and just bulldozed off the road and to allow the convoy to go through. Um, so we need a territorial defense force that is authorized to use lethal force as they see fit um, is one way of, of at least minimizing the danger of this internal or mixed city front. As far as the territories are concerned, look, um, Oslo is dead. We're not going back to it. There is no accommodation with these people in any way, shape, or form. So let's just cut to the chase. What am I talking about? And nobody, nobody will let me address this issue in print in this country. Really? Nobody. Why? Because I'm in favor of transfer. And that seems to be so horrifying a concept that people would rather go on um, repeating the same stupidity, definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome, than... To think about other options. Now, you say, well, transfer. I mean, good God, are you really thinking about that? And I'm saying, yeah, I'm a student of history. Transfer has been used many times. Uh, during the um, beginning of uh, the Indo-Pakistani Wars in 1948, the Wars of Liberation, so to speak, of independence. In Europe, following the first, uh, Second World War, there were massive population transfers. So here, with the territories, when you are dealing with an intractable situation and a, an enemy population that you know, revels at a, in a pathology of blood at the, at, the thought, at the mere thought of Jewish dead, what are you supposed to do? Well, I'm not in favor, obviously, of massacres. We don't, that's not our way. You just make things so tough they leave. We can debate that issue at some length later, but this, this is one solution. Um, as far as Iran is concerned, I hate to put it to you this way, but there is no level of conventional bombing that is worth it with regard to the, the threat of the Iranian nuclear uh, issue. It's too late. So... If we acknowledge the fact that this bomb represents an existential threat to our existence, either by its very existence or because they will use that to intimidate or deter us from, let's say, really finishing Hezbollah off in a, uh, in a war with them, in a multi-front war, um, then that leaves only one option. And here's the option. It's a 20-minute war, and 80 million Iranians die. Now, usually the oxygen goes out of the room when I brief this, especially to military personnel. And I ask them a very simple question. Why did we build Dimona? And the answer, the conventional wisdom with Dimona, it isn't the Masada complex or anything like that. It's to deter our enemies. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate, I hate to break it to people, but the enemy, however defined, is not afraid of us anymore. This arsenal that we've built up at great cost 
is, is useless because the enemy doesn't believe that we'll ever use it. And they've said as much. And frankly, given what I've seen over the years, I can't really argue with them. I don't think they're miscalculating in this respect. So if the arsenal has lost its deterrent value, then the only option we have is to actually use it. And yes, we can argue over how it's to be used or in what context or in which way, but it has to be used. Why? Because we have to reestablish a sense of credibility. Uh, we have to reestablish a sense of deterrence. Uh, I was yelled at and really subjected to a, just an avalanche of criticism on this um, with people saying to me, you know, how can you, do you understand the kind of casualties that you're going to inflict on that? And my answer to that, and it wasn't flip, was, well, let's see, 80 million Iranians and 7 million Jews, I think we have the day, we have the argument. So this, this issue with Iran, I think, is the, 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 the best example I can use for why I think Bibi Netanyahu is the wrong guy at the helm of government right now. Well, as I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm envisioning the world play out in in the manner that you describe, right? You, you're uh, forcing... It's Hobbesian, okay? It's Hobbesian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, you're forcing people out in, in Gaza. You're forcing people out in the West Bank. You're um, suggesting that we nuke Iran and the deaths of, I don't know how many millions of people there. It's um, it's a nightmare. It's a, It's an absolute nightmare. We're living in a nightmare now. Um, and it isn't getting any better. I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I mean, but it's I, it's it's pretty bad. But let me and let me just so ask or, or prod in in terms of the look. There's this concept. Um, I got this from Nietzsche, where mm -hmm. the will to power, mm -hmm. right? Where we're we're not one person. We are a uh, you know a composite of different desires and wills trying to play out and play out uh, manifest themselves in the world so we want to eat we want to take a ship we want to go for a walk we want to sit we want to love but whatever right and and they're all in competition with one another and then something comes out and that's that's the will to power and that's the world essentially the world of human relations and um and so he used that to to criticize uh, works of great philosophy, like here's some guy saying, you know, mm -hmm. oh, I, I don't know. Yeah, I think he attacks um, Spinoza as one of them. He says, look, I I figured out some, you know, very nice theory about the world. Actually, you know, you're hiding some, I don't know, whatever, something that you want, you love from your mom, or I don't know what. You want to be accepted by your community. Who knows what? You want to show how smart you are. And I've uh, heard words said about Baruch Spinoza. Trust <laughs> me. <laughs> anyway, so I, I'm 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 wondering. What motivates you to think that way? That you know the Jewish people need to defend themselves to such a degree that they must cause this much harm and damage to the people in their environment. Um, the Emperor Tiberius had a philosophy that I've embraced completely, uncritically, and that is, um, he said, "Let them, let them hate, so long as they're they fear." And for too long, we've been victimized, massacred, um, dispossessed, um, 
humiliated, and it's enough. I'm not advocating a, what they call a greater Israel, you know, from uh, the Euphrates to the Nile. I'll mm -hmm. let Moshiach, when he comes, figure that out. Okay. I want people, I want especially our regional neighbors to leave us alone. And the only way, this is the Middle East, okay? Mm -hmm. This is where I really learned politics. The only thing our neighbors understand strength. is strength. And unfortunately, we have let this situation deteriorate right now by this management mentality and by kicking the can down the road mm. where it has become existential now. So the issue is how do you handle an existential problem? Well, you flip, you turn the page on them and you say, okay, now you're going to experience an existential problem. Mm. And all of this is all about, I mean, everything that I advocate is about survival. Right. That's, That's all. I'm not advocating an imperial policy right. where we conquer this country or that country. Um, we have endpoints that we stop at. This is what your dad said to you, right? Worry about your own survival, care for your own people. Correct. Right. right. So there's a, there's a, okay, so if you want to go down another level there, you, okay, you mentioned um, Jews have been tormented throughout many hundreds thousands of from years. time immemorial yeah and you know essentially from the the day the first the day of the first jew until now right there is this kind of resentment towards the jew that plays out in all sorts of ways and that's obviously understood as anti-semitism but it's a loose term right mm -hmm. but essentially it's like hatred of the it jew. takes on different forms different reasons but yeah. yeah hatred of the jew because the jew I don't is know, different is is different but even successful i would right. say right you can even see that right now in the region. It's just like the most successful country in the region by far. Um, and it's resented. And it's resented for that success, sure. Um, and we're also dealing with a local religion, Islam, that's an imperial religion that can't accept us as Dehimis, second-class citizens, having... A, an army that's capable of defeating three Arab armies at one time, as we did in '67. Okay, this is this this is runs against the grain of the local imperial ethos, Islamic ethos. So again, so I I want to cut to the core of the story, which is if the price to pay in your mind is such broad scale destruction and damage, do you think then that? there's even any point to having a Judaism. I mean, if that's the price mm -hmm. that Judaism must pay. pay in order to live in peace mm -hmm. in, in its... I don't own. have any problem with that. <laughs> but what, do, you, do you feel comfortable that the Jewish life, such as it is, such as it continues to evolve, is worth that kind of a price? A hundred percent. Absolutely. I sacrificed my life. I was willing to sacrifice my life for the welfare and well-being of this country. Okay. I think the Iranians can do the same thing for theirs. <laughs> for theirs? Mm -hmm. They can sacrifice their lives for their country. I mean, don't, don't you think that some of them are already doing that? Um, at this point, I don't really care. Mm-hmm. You know, I've read a lot of studies of the men 
who dropped bombs over Germany in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. During the city busting days, the area bombing of Bomber Harris. And the same types of men that in the uh, 20th Air Force in the Pacific under courtesy LeMay that firebombed Tokyo. And, um, yeah, there were some that were appalled at what happened, that were troubled by what happened, but most of them understood that, you know, they had it coming. Somebody who starts a war shouldn't complain about who, how the intended victim ends it. Mm. We haven't started anything around here except by our existence. And um, it's time we end it. If the... Uh, Iranians or the Lebanese, for that, whoever the Lebanese are, for that matter, or the so-called Palestinians, um, end up on the short end of the stick. Um, it's I don't care. I just don't care anymore. Do I see them as humans? To the extent that I will allow people to leave a city before flattening it, yes, I see them as human beings. Um, those leaving it don't represent a threat to us. They can be on their way, and that's fine. They shouldn't be uh, pillaged. They shouldn't be harmed. They shouldn't be murdered or anything like that. They should no sabrinitsa. Just go, and then the city is flattened, and that's it. And the and the enemy is buried within within the rubble. As far as Iran is concerned, um, if we don't end this in the way that I suggested. At the very least, we're going to be in the midst of a nuclear race, armaments race, very shortly. Certainly with the Saudis, certainly with the Turks, and even with the Egyptians. And the, we, we can't live in this kind of world because we're not, we're not dealing – it's not like the Russians, the Soviets, and the Americans with mutual assured destruction. You know, where you're, the Soviets were rational. We were dealing with a rational power. And so they understood the calculus of deterrence. In the case of China, once they got past the Cultural Revolution, yes, we're dealing with very rational people mm. there. With North Korea, um, you know, I've 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 had arguments over uh, Kim Jong Il, you know, and 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 yes, they're rational too in an irrational way, but they too are rational. As far as the Iranians are concerned, we've never had a situation where a millennialist um, religious dictatorship has had their hands on a bomb, where they feel, and they're, they're, they actually believe this, I'm not going to criticize them, they actually feel this way, that if there is one Shiite left standing after a nuclear exchange, they win. Well, how are you going to argue with them on this? You can't. You know, it's so, like arguing with a mad dog. You just have to put it down. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use your words against you. So you're pointing the finger, and you've got three fingers pointing right back at you. Mm -hmm. Could you not see someone um, you know what? interpreting you as some sort of millennialist? I'm not, I'm not a millennialist in the sense that I'm trying to spread my views around the world. I'm just trying to defend our people. Mm -hmm. However we eventually define ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, a millennialist, in my, if I were a millennialist, I would say we're going to nuke everything. Cairo, Amman, Jeddah, Damascus, Beirut, and we're going to spread the borders out like Eretz Hatzvi. You know, 
That's a millennialist. I, I leave that to Moshiach, whatever happens in under that terms. Okay. With me, this is highly focused, and it's, it's um, restricted to def- what I call a war of defensive action. That's it. Um, are we worth surviving if it, if it involves the death of so many? Um, yes. Why? Because, first of all, I think every people deserve the right to survive, number one. Number two, if a people is threatened with extinction, as we are, I believe that no rules apply at all, none. And except to restrict our actions against those states that are really posing a threat to our existence. Nowhere else. Um, I would not be so arrogant as to say we don't deserve to live if it involves the death of so many other people. Um, I'll leave that to the philosophers and the rabbis and the social commentators. I'll leave that to them. In the meantime, I'll get on with the business of safeguarding our survival. You know, I was once I was once asked, you know, that if the information I gave Israel somehow wound up uh, being lost to Russia, the Soviet Union, and the uh, Soviet spies, the CIA spies that had provided the information to the United States originally, were caught and killed. Um, would I have a problem with that? And my lawyers were telling me, don't answer this, don't answer this. <laughs> and I said, no, I, I, I don't back away from, from issues like that. And I said, if they were not willing to die for what they thought was a higher cause, then that's their problem. Just as I didn't, I, I faced that issue also. So that I, that's, I guess... If I had to make it really sharp, my question. All right, so yeah, I wanted to just so clarify that the last point, which is because it, it sounds like survival just for survival's sake. You said, you know, people, any people has a right to survive, but is there something about Jews and Judaism? Is there a positive vision of Judaism? Right? Is there, is Absolutely. There, okay. we, we have a, a tremendous um, gift to give to the world, a gift of humanistic values, uh, a gift of um, proportion and decent uh, behavior uh, between people. Um, we, we have a concept of God, which is uh, largely benevolent, but also, um, what they say, a yoke on our shoulders. Pretty which, realistic, right? Hmm? Pretty realistic, if you, if you think about it's it. It's pretty realistic. I mean, the thing about yoke of Torah is... Uh, and what it implies in fear of heaven is I never trust a person that doesn't have a fear of heaven. Why? Because he has no limits at that point. He has no limits on what he does. Someone who has a legitimate fear of heaven understands that there are limits in his actions, that they they have to conform to a certain uh, humane uh, set of transcendent philosophies and beliefs that you just can't make up the rules on your own. And then, you know, this is a lifeboat ethics or something like that. There has to be a reason for it, and there has to be a limit on it. 
So this is this is why I've I've admitted that I, I have limits on this otherwise horrific policy that I'm proposing. That it's not geared towards an imperial end, but but it's just a survival end. And do we have something to give the world? Yes, we do. We have since the moment Avram Avinu, you know, recognized the oneness of God. Um, so what I'm unhappy about is that our leaders, our elected leaders in our military here, our high command, have allowed the situation to devolve to the point where people like me and our solutions are even seen as possible responses to the mess we're in. That they're not seen as possible. That they're seen as possible. Ah. That I'm a f- I'm angry that things have been allowed to deteriorate oh, I see, I see. Okay. to okay. the point where, yeah, people like me are let out of the cage. To suggest something like to get to we we I would have preferred um if if I had my druthers what the clan leaders suggested, limit our autonomy in the territories, we all grow rich together, everything's fine. Is that a good outcome? Sure, why not? Um, I hope it's still possible, man. Um I mean, whatever. Like well, everyone stays of, where they all, are and yeah, then well unfortunately, you know, look Anything is possible. Mm -hmm. The issue is whether it's probable or not. And unfortunately, at this point, um, and again, I blame us for this because we had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to to stop this process of utter mayhem and anarchy, and we didn't do anything. There was a piece that just came out in the Times of Israel, mm-hmm. which is, was a real eye-opener to me as to how we, as the, quote, occupying power, uh, allowed the, the business and industrial and social conditions in the territories uh, with the Palestinian population to deteriorate to the point where they don't have anything to lose as far as they're concerned. I'm not absolving the Palestinian, quote, authority of any responsibility, <clears throat> but, you know, we had a vote in this also. And we just failed miserably. Well, would, if we had done everything we were supposed to do, would that have delayed or prevented what we're seeing now? Who knows? We'll never know. Would it have been possible? Yes. Probable? I have no way of knowing. But what I do know is that our governments, plural, and our high command have allowed this security situation to deteriorate to the point where Anything is possible in terms of addressing these existential threats that we're facing now. So we end on a downer. Well, I've been, you know, it's funny. At the end of several speeches I've given, people raised their hands and said, you know, do you have anything happy? Do you have anything (laughs) nice? Do you have anything optimistic to say at all? And um, I have to think about it for a second, and my wife is looking at me, and I say, yes, I do have something optimistic. I look at children, Jewish children, laughing and playing on the streets of Jerusalem now, and I say, thank God. I see people in this country living up to their expectations and their dreams and desires, 
in whatever way they define them, and it's wonderful. I have wonderful conversations and wonderful friends in the Arab community that I would defend um, just as much as I would defend a fellow Jew. And I take great pride in that and great happiness. I derive great happiness in that fact. Um, I'm happy that when I was in the darkest place of my life, after burying my wife, she gave me the light of a new relationship. She did the shidduch with my current wife. Right. So am I a happy person? Do I have you know positive ideas and aspirations? Yes, of course. The problem is um, we're in a lifeboat. And I don't want to say lifeboat ethics, but we are in a lifeboat. And some of the people are punching holes in the boat because we should learn to live with the sharks. And the others are, are pulling with their backs to the front, the bow. They don't know where they're going. They're just pulling. This is the right and left wing. And neither situation is good. Um, so am I optimistic? Is a half glass filled, half empty? I say the glass is half filled right now because there are solutions to our existential threats right now. And as far as our domestic situation is concerned, I am optimistic that they could be addressed when and if uh, the present government applies the law uniformly. Um, I think that a large problem that we have in the country could be solved by judicial reform, and I'm optimistic about that. And likewise, I feel that um, military reform is also absolutely critical. If we're to have a, a viable um, military establishment, that actually knows how to win wars decisively and thereby deter them from happening in the future. Mm. That's the whole point of fighting decisively. You fight once, you're not going to get messed with. And if you win decisively, you don't have to go on winning and winning and winning. People leave you alone. Right. And that's all I want. Right. Am I in favor of the Abraham Accords? Absolutely, 100%. Do I hope that they will include Saudi Arabia? Absolutely, I hope so. Do I wish for a, a warmer peace with Egypt? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we have almost unlimited mm. possibilities here for a wonderful future. Yeah. And it's being screwed up by idiots that are pretending to be our betters in government. And they aren't. They're idiots. I mean, the only thing they're worried about is maintaining their seat. That's it. We don't need people like this, you know, running our lives. I've told friends of mine in the Liquid Central Committee, you guys better wake up because you're going to lose big time in the next election. Why? Because, well, here goes. BB is no better than Bennett. When BB came out with a statement in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, uh, we're going to give up on judicial reform, mm -hmm. it's no different than what Bennett did when he turned his back on 500,000 constituents, right, and did things he promised he wouldn't do. Now, B.B. has since said uh, he was misinterpreted. He was, you know, excuse me, that man speaks better English than mm -hmm. anyone I've ever <laughs> known in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
He's, he's a gifted, not since Churchill have we seen as gifted an orator as Bibi Netanyahu. Right. He wasn't misinterpreted. You know, he can now say, well, you know, we're, we're going to be clever about this and do it by increments. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. You know, he had an opportunity to carry out the will of his electorate when he, was, when he won. And for some reason, I don't know why, he just backed away from it. So we need new leadership now. And I've told the Likud, you know, if you have to, you know, elect David Anselm, you know, at least, at least I know the guy will carry out what he says. He, you know, he's an interesting guy. But, you know, I'm, I'm sick of these sophisticated, supposedly sophisticated people who just lie to your face and just do horrible things because, well, we have no choice. Right. You don't give in to mob rule. Right. You know, this is another lesson I learned from prison. I was in prisons where mob rule almost took over, and it's frightening. Um, and we're getting to this situation. Now, when you have the former head of the police, Eshel, in Tel Aviv, saying, I couldn't break heads. I don't want anybody's head broken. I just want them arrested, put on a bus, taken down to a lot, processed under the sun, and said, okay, you have a fine now. If you're arrested a second time, you're going to prison, according to the law. Mm -hmm. You can get back to wherever you live on your own now. Have a nice day. I don't want anybody hurt. And again, if the situation is allowed to continue to degenerate into chaos and anarchy, right. what are the consequences? Mob rule, so much for democracy. Worse than that, civil war could break out. Right. God forbid. And number three, our enemies look at this and miscalculate. Mm. Those are the three possible outcomes from a government that will not impose or defend the rule of law impartially. Mm. That's why I'm opposed to the current government we have mm. right now. Hmm. Well, that's a really interesting point. It's one, I, honestly, it's it's a it's a perspective I hadn't heard like that. That the. Um, yeah, the 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 defense and the imposition of the rule of law—that that's actually not a, a take I've heard. It's you know, you saw a lot of stuff about corruption, and I saw stuff people just don't like BB in general because of his views and stuff. But that it's it's it's, it's that's it's, actually more. That's all I'm asking for. It's more pragmatic than all the other stuff. I, I feel correct. Like. Yeah. Again, you want to protest? Fine, protest. Yeah. You want to work for the change in government? Work for the change in government, but follow the law. Right. Right. Because if you don't, then we're we're in a Hobbesian I, in a right. Hobbesian environment where because then it's just whoever can sell their idea the best. You know, it's okay. So now we're above the law because we're you know defenders of democracy or whatever it is, right? Like it, it just becomes a contest of who can sell the better story to Correct. get to be or above who can, the law. Who can get you know so many people? Look, you don't have right wing people doing this right now because they we've assumed that you know we have a government. 
that we voted for to do certain things, and so we're new, we're waiting for them to do it. Right. There's no there's no real reason for us to be protesting every day. Well, maybe there should be. <laughs> maybe maybe we should be out on the streets telling the government you ran on a platform that we voted in favor of. Yeah, get on with it. Right. Well. Where to go? You gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> I have responsibilities. Uh, responsibilities. This is fun, John. This is fun. Let me just.